0: Bernie Sanders have a tremendous impact on American politics, despite his two losses. And why did he lose? Well, those are the things that we're going to talk about with his former deputy campaign manager in 2020, Ari Benhoff. He's written a book called "The Fighting Soul: On the Road with Bernie Sanders." Uh, Ari, welcome back.
1: Thanks for having me, Jenk.
0: No problem. Um, so, Ari. Um, there's a lot of things in the book that are interesting, and some things we didn't know. There was a conversation. I'm going to start with this because it's fascinating, and then I want to get to the larger stories. Obama and Bernie Sanders had a meeting in 2018. What happened in that meeting?
1: So it was this really crazy moment on the camp before the campaign. Bernie had asked to meet with Obama. I had called his office, scheduled the meeting. We went over to his office, which is just like near Georgetown in DC. And I wasn't planning on being in the meeting. I thought it was just gonna be the two of them. And there was this weird moment where Obama kind of put his arm around me and put me in the room. So it's me, Barack Obama and Bernie Sanders, which it's like getting to view these two historic figures in conversation with each other was one of, like a seminal moment frankly in my life. Um, But one remark that I I thought really struck me and I really, I I literally left the meeting and wrote it down because it was so, it it hung for me was they first just kind of were chatting, catching up on some issues and then Barack Obama was like, so Bernie, You're here to talk because you want to run for president. Bernie was like, I haven't made up my mind yet, which is true. He had not made up his mind to run in 2020 at that point in 2018. But he wanted to get Obama's opinion and Obama kind of started talking about what he thought the race would shape like what he thought about other candidates. And then he turned to Bernie and said, Bernie, you're an Old Testament prophet. You give the party a moral voice, but prophets don't get to be king. A king has to make choices that profits don't. And his point, he kind of furthered the point in saying like, you have to represent a party with a lot of ideological views. You have to represent maybe a small business owner who doesn't agree with you on minimum wage. You have to represent a lot of different people. Can you like, broaden yourself? Can you make those compromises to represent those people? And I think it said a lot about Obama. It also said a lot about Bernie that No, Bernie's not gonna compromise on things that are core to him. He's gonna run as Bernie Sanders and he will win or lose as Bernie Sanders regardless of outside pressures, even from a former president who he actually does respect a lot.
0: Yeah, I think actually that's one of the problems. Uh, So I I know that that's uh, not a popular opinion, but um, so Barack Obama is the one who ended him. In South Carolina. I mean, yes, Jim Clyburn came out in favor of uh, Joe Biden, and the mythology goes that he made the biggest difference. No, he made the second biggest difference. Barack Obama seemed to have called all of the uh, conservative Democratic candidates and told them to drop out and support Joe Biden. That totally worked, and that was the number one decisive factor. Uh, So does Bernie acknowledge that Obama ended him?
1: well i think there's a historic fact that by the way others have reported on this isn't you or me this is you know a lot of other reporters have reported on what on that on that going on cuz obviously barack obama didn't call bernie to drop out and be like bernie you should drop out and not run like he didn't do that but there is reporting from a number of reporters exactly what you said that barack obama called other candidates and said we have to consolidate this field if we don't bernie's going to be the nominee and that and and that will According to Obama, I think I disagree with this. I know you disagree with this as well. That would lead to Donald Trump winning again. We can't have this. We need you to drop out right now. And I think you just have to acknowledge that historic fact. There's no, it's, it's not a, it's not an item to me it's not an item for debate it's just it is a fact of this the 2020 race
0: right so but Bernie keeps thinking from this from the outside I know him a little bit you me and him have had dinners etc and I love him as a person I think he's a fantastic human being but I but like all humans he has weaknesses and I think his number one weakness in the 2020 campaign was that he liked Joe Biden too much and he respected the establishment too much. I think that if he had ripped his guts out, he would have won. But he doesn't have that in it. And
1: and in the book, there's a really pivotal pivotal scene in the book that I think your viewers and I think you, it's fair, it speaks to at this exact point. Because the time to kind of do that was not in February or March. That's kind of almost too late, right? The time to do that is earlier because you know it was true that Joe Biden was kind of the one candidate the establishment could unite around it, 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 other candidates it would be much more difficult to create the unity everybody kind of knew that that's why after south carolina like you know if they could have united around Pete Buttigieg after Iowa or his second place in New Hampshire they would have done that right but they knew Joe Biden was the candidate to unite around and they kind of waited for south carolina to do that so the question is if if you want to run that strategy, there was a lot of staff. The staff opinion, in general, kind of across the board, was post August in September, when the campaign is on a downswing and we're into that September debate. Bernie should attack, um, should should go on the attack at that debate right off the bat in his opening statement. In the book, I describe an opening statement was written. Bernie read it. Bernie in prep talked about it. He went through it. He kind he he practiced it. He agreed to it. We got to the green room. He read it again, which you know, and that was a he wrote it out. He had to memorize it because you can't bring statements out on stage. He wrote it out on his legal pad. He read it, and then in between that moment and going on stage, he just kind of decided. And I described the actual situations, and people can read it in the book. Um, He made a decision not to do it, and he left the green room. And it was only Faz, Shakir, the campaign manager, myself in the green room with him when he walked out. And we kind of looked at each other and was like, is he gonna do it? And he kind of went out and did the standard Bernie speech that we all love, but certainly wasn't gonna deliver a punch or make a difference in the race in a significant way at that point. I think if you were looking for like a seminal moment, it's that debate moment where he made a choice not to do it.
0: Yeah, that is definitely the moment, and uh, and I was there. I was and uh, and you know, obviously, I've got a lot of friends in the campaign, and I knew he made that decision, and I knew we were toast. But for the folks at home, what was in that opening statement?
1: Um, you saw it later. It was uh, essentially uh, the opening statement was basically like, "Hey, Joe, you've been wrong. Like you claim you have the experience, you claim you have." the knowledge to be present. But let's talk about everything you've been wrong about. And then just going down and you know hitting him on trade, hitting him on Iraq, hitting him on his positions on health care, just kind of just going through every single thing and just basically saying your experience, your experience is the experience of being wrong was basically the statement.
0: So he just doesn't have it in him to be mean. Um, and and Ari to this day, I mean, I mean he, he, he did. was that? He
1: did it to Pete Buttigieg. He does sometimes. He did it to Pete Buttigieg in New Hampshire. He went. We said Pete Buttigieg is on the rise, coming into the New Hampshire primary after Iowa. We said you need to go eviscerate Pete Buttigieg, now, and he went out at, and he agreed. And he went out at the Politics and Eggs breakfast, which is a big political event in New Hampshire. The entire you know hundreds of reporters there, and he just started reading headlines about Pete Buttigieg taking billionaire money and basically calling him, calling him out for that. In in a pretty aggressive and and uh, forthright way, he did that. Then he, but I think the seminal moment is, you're right, September, the September mid-September debate in uh, Ohio, not in Ohio, I, oh, Houston, maybe.
0: Yeah, and and so, to this day, though, Ari, uh, you know, it seems like the fact that he has, and apparently, by the way, Biden's whole thing of being friendly with politicians, etc. It's old school, it doesn't work. It didn't get him any legislative victories uh, as president, but it worked at the most critical time. It worked with a decent person like Bernie Sanders, who just couldn't in his mind be mean to a guy who was nice to him. So Pete Buttigieg is never nice to Bernie Sanders. Joe Biden has been nice to Bernie Sanders, but Bernie doesn't (laughs) get it, that's a trick. Uh, So I don't care- yeah, no, go ahead.
1: I think with um I think with Bernie, the we all know Bernie as a guy who believes in issues and believes those issues very strongly in those issues and kind of doesn't deviate from that. I, I point this out in the book. He also has a very strong belief that politics has to be conducted a certain way, And he won't deviate from that. And I think this is part of that that belief. And for Bernie, it's not just about winning on his issues. It's about winning. The way he wants to
0: win. So Ari, for the people at home, how uh, how should politics be conducted according to Bernie?
1: You know, it should be conducted. I I mean, like, and part of the reason I wrote this book is because Bernie, you and you know this well, like, very much hesitates to tell his own story at times, which I think is important and would benefit him as a politician very much. And I, I felt that story was actually important. Is who is this person who is a seminal figure in American history? I believe who has. Shifted the country. Um, he doesn't believe in he believes in kind of he's a very good counterpuncher, which is why I think he felt comfortable attacking Pete Buttigieg, but he won't throw the first punch, is is very clear throughout his career, right? He'll counterpunch when he feels attacked, but he he's he doesn't think politics should be negative. He thinks politics should be run on issues, and he very much kind of sticks to that.
0: Yeah, well, he's wrong. They're negative against him, they were viciously negative against him, and it worked. And you don't have to be negative and in a malicious way. You could just state the facts, state the facts. Biden's record was terrible.
1: Which is which what the plan was on yeah. that's mid-September debate. It was yeah. literally state the facts about his record, which is terrible. That was, I mean, you were there. You you know enough people on the campaign to This isn't new information to you. But I do feel like people, it does benefit to understand what happened. No question,
0: no question. That's why the book is important. It's called The Fighting Soul. Even though I'm out of time, I got to ask you one more thing. So look, you talk about it. A lot of the press talks about it. Bernie's a seminal figure. No question that he's a historic figure in the ways that you describe him. But then everybody adds, and that's because he's pushed the Democratic Party in in his own direction, and now et cetera, et cetera. But Ari, I don't think that second part is true. $15 minimum wage, we don't have it. Medicare for all, we don't have it all of our progressive issues. We don't have any of them. So we pushed and pushed, but we actually didn't get anywhere. And by the way, here we are. Now Bernie's making the same exact mistake he made on the campaign. He's being super nice to Biden. So Biden has no pressure from the left. If he'd beat up Biden from the left, maybe we would have gotten $15 minimum wage. That's a, probably a poor example, but some of the issues we certainly could have.
1: Well, let's take the $15 an hour minimum wage. I think this is actually this is this is, you know, he has not won. And I make that point in the book. We we don't have Medicare for All. And I think until we have Medicare for All, by the way, the project of this campaign, the project of Bernie's life, and something that you and I believe in, until we have that, that project is not done. And and there's still there's still work to do when it is incomplete. But take $15 an hour minimum wage. When he started on $15 an hour minimum wage in 2015, it was a crazy radical position inside the Democratic caucus. Now, the overwhelming majority of the caucus supports it in, in burn, like literally supports Bernie's bill. And you do, you don't have the entirety of the Democratic party, which is the problem. And look, there's still stuff to be done, but you cannot doubt the progress in terms of nobody supporting something to more than 40 Democratic senators supporting something.
0: Yeah, number one, I don't believe them. I think the great majority of them are liars, uh, and uh, and they would just hide behind whoever the last Democratic vote is that betrays the cause and, and works with the Republicans. They all get the corporate donor money. They're all but addicted to the corporate re- donor money.
1: They didn't, I, as, I actually don't disagree with you. My point is, Back, back five years ago, they felt no pressure to take that position. There's a reason they feel pressure now to take that position, and there's a reason we shouldn't let up the pressure, and neither should Bernie.
0: Well, that's exactly my point. I mean, he wasn't even going to introduce $15 minimum wage in that bill, and then when he did, you know, he we honestly progressive base pressured him into it, and I'm thrilled that we did because we found out the eight Democratic senators who are against us. But Bernie didn't want to do that because that's going to embarrass those senators. If he wanted to fight, he would say, "Hey, wait a minute, look at that." That's Carper and Coons who voted no on $15 minimum wage. That's Biden's two top allies in the Senate, both from Delaware. There's no way in the world he didn't talk to the White House. That means Joe Biden is against the $15 minimum wage. Out the son of a bitch. Out him already. Jesus Christ, bite him. But Bernie won't do it because he likes Biden too much. But you know what? That's being mean to your voters. I, and so if we're being honest about it, I love the guy. He's a wonderful guy. He's done this rhetorical push that's made a big difference. But his... He just cannot fight corporate Democrats, and it's made all the difference.
1: Well, look, I think, I think there is a, a legitimate criticism, and I think I do talk about it in the book about the the pulling the punches on Biden. I don't think there's any doubt that there is a lot of affection, and he definitely pulled punches during the campaign. In terms of impact, I do think it is a very different Democratic Party than. Than five years ago, and definitely a different Democratic Party than 10, 15 years ago. And I think a lot of that credit belongs to Bernie.
0: Okay. Well, certainly. And when we do pass those things, you know, I've always said, and maybe this combines ironically, very ironically, my point and Obama's point, that Bernie's kind of like John the Baptist, right? He's the prelude. But at the end of the day, you need a fighter to finish it. So, but no one can take Bernie's credit away for starting this. And for getting it to the point that he has, and there's no question and, and, about
1: and that. I, and that's what I mean by progress, right? We're at a very different point in these fights than we were five years ago, and I think we're not done. And there's a lot more fighting. And you know, my instinct is always to throw a punch, so I tend to agree with you. I'd rather be throwing punches than than taking them. So, you know, I do think there will, that we will need to throw a lot more punches to win these fights.
0: Yes, and those two presidential campaigns were absolutely historic, no one can doubt that either. And Ari saw it all and it's in the book The Fighting Soul. So everybody check it out. Ari, thank you so much for joining us, we appreciate it.
1: Thank thank you so much, Shank. great to be here.
0: Can a black progressive win a statewide race in Kentucky? Well, let's find out. Charles Booker is running, uh, for the U.S. Senate seat against Rand Paul. Uh, and uh, he looks like he's gonna win his primary on May 17th. Hasn't happened yet, but he's in good shape here. Uh and he almost won a primary last time against uh, last time around against Mitch McConnell. Charles, welcome back to the show. Absolutely good to be back, brother. All right, great to have you. All right, so uh look, you've got some um is, you know, bona fides in government. You were uh, the youngest black person elected in 90 years in Kentucky into the state uh, house. You were a state representative. Um, but last time around, when you ran in the primary against Amy McGrath, the establishment came out full force on her side, gave her a ton of money, and you almost caught her anyway. Okay, so this time around, they're not running against you. So. <laughs> I don't know, did, does that tell you something? Did they think that they, they they didn't quite have a chance of beating you this time around? And are you encouraged by that?
2: Well, I'm absolutely encouraged, man. I, I have explained to the people of Kentucky and, and our campaign and young leaders across the Commonwealth that we've made ourselves inevitable. Um, party leadership in Kentucky and nationally, uh, probably don't want to see a young black man from the hood. Um, being the the top of the ticket, um, but because of the message, um, the work that we're lifting up, fighting for regular people, pushing against the establishment um, on either side, and saying that this is about humanity, um, they couldn't beat us, and uh, we're going to make history on May 17.
0: All right, um, I think you say that it's from the hood to the holler. Is that if I'm getting That's that right? right? Okay, so what do you mean by that, especially in the context of Kentucky?
2: So, from the hood to the holler is really a rallying cry. Um, it's a declaration of regular people in communities that are often forgotten and ignored. I'm from the hood, one of the poorest zip codes in Kentucky. And folks that are in, live in hollers, which are in rural areas, you know, it's majority white at this point in time. And um, the scenery, the geography is different, but our issues are so similar. Um, I'm essentially saying that regular folks that are counted out our locked arms and fighting for our future. And what we're seeing now with people who had MAGA hats who are organizing with me, people who have never voted before that are organizing with me, we're lifting up a movement. And it really is about saying we want to end poverty. We want to pull up the roots of structural racism. We're tired of being at the bottom in pretty much everything, and we're tired of falling off the cliff. And I'm proud as a Kentuckian to show that it's possible in a place like my home in the Commonwealth here.
0: Yeah, well, you know, if you're going to win a statewide race in Kentucky, obviously you got to win over a decent amount of Republican voters and almost all the independents. So, um, what's your battle plan there? I mean, you said you got some guys in MAGA hats that are campaigning with you. What's working in Kentucky to bring the middle and the and the right to your side?
2: Well, there's one thing that's true about Kentucky. Um, people will say it's a red state. That is too dismissive. Um, Kentucky is not a red state. It's actually a very disenfranchised. Marginalized and ignored state. And so many of the issues that I'm fighting for, um, it's not because of my party registration, it's because of the things I've seen, the struggles that I've faced, uh, rationing my insulin, dealing with the loss of loved ones to gun violence, um, high utility costs, you know, water that's not clean, and all of these issues that at the end of the day are not really partisan. And so I'm showing up in areas that uh, Republicans tend to dominate, but Democrats don't go. And when I do, I find people that I won relieved, thankful that someone actually cares about them and will show up. And they're ready to work, they're ready to fight back. And so this really isn't rocket science. We're building community and we're stepping out of the comfort zone and out of the typical talking points and the, the national BS that drives people apart. And we're finding a coalition that's ready to win. And if you look at the map, a lot of the folks in Kentucky that voted for Donald Trump, voted for Bernie Sanders too. They're looking for real change anywhere they can find it, and, and they're finding it in our campaign.
0: So Charles, you know, oftentimes the media talks about politics like it's a line, right? There's left and there's the right. There's progressives and there's conservatives, but it's not really like that. It's actually a quadrant. There's also populist versus the establishment, and that's a different sphere. And so where would you put yourself in that sphere?
2: Well, I agree with that assessment, and you know, a lot of my politics um, really speaks to a populist lens. Um, and if you think about a place like Kentucky where poverty is generational, um, industries have preyed upon us, um, we've been crushed by the opioid crisis, we've been crushed by politicians like Mitch and Rand. There is a desire and a need to fight back and fight together for regular people. And so you know, I, I am fighting for real progress. Uh, we are fighting against corporate interests, I'm not taking corporate dollars. Um, we're fighting for structural change. And that means that we're not running, I'm not running simply to say I'm Charles Booker, the Democrat. I'm running to say I'm a Kentuckian who's sick and tired of being screwed and ignored. And if you feel that same way, let's stand together. And um, I'm proud of what we're building. And I I wanna share everyone that's watching now that wants us to get rid of Rand Paul, go to charlesbooker.org and help us in this work.
0: It's charlesbooker.org, everybody, by the way, .org. Okay, so Charles, Rand Paul has already figured out, hey, Kentucky's populist. To me, Kentucky and West Virginia are the two most populist states. And I agree with you completely. It isn't about red and blue. They used to be represented by Democrats forever and ever and ever. Those two states, it's about populist versus establishment. But the problem is Rand Paul's a fake populist. So how do you defeat fake populism with real populism?
2: Well, the biggest opportunity we have with Rand Paul is, we get to call him out. Most people don't know what he does in Kentucky. And and I'll tell you, people laugh at him here just as much as they do nationally. Um, They don't realize that he's actually been screwing us the way that he has because they just see him arguing with Dr. Fauci. But by us shining the light on who this man is, that he's been selling us out for big money interest, that he's been blocking the investments in our infrastructure, that he, he opposes. Us getting more health care when we're one of the sickest states, that he tells us we should be fine with poverty. When we show people who he is, they run away from him because they're desperate for change. Now, Kentuckians want someone who's going to fight the establishment, someone who's going to shake up the status quo. And Rand Paul acted like that's who he would be. He's not even a libertarian, he's just a crisis actor and an opportunist. And I'm calling out his BS and I'm building a movement that's bigger than him at the same time. And that's why we're going to beat him.
0: So you said he sells out Kentucky for big money interests, how so?
2: You know, well, if you look at the fact that a lot of his finances, so I'm my campaign small dollar, regular folks, and I'm proud of that. Um, he's funded by corporations, uh, the pharmaceutical industry, um, love someone like Rand Paul. Um, all of the, the big money interests that have been preying on us, the, the fossil fuel industry, um, if you look at Mitch and Rand, we have both of them. Um, so I apologize to the country. I'm trying to do my part in that, uh, but at every turn, they're selling us out for these these interests to line their pockets. He supported um, the tax cut for the wealthiest few, uh, but wants to oppose investments in relief in our local government in our local communities. Um, he doesn't care about us. And at this moment, you know, people see his theatrics, but we're dying because of it in the pandemic. He's telling folks, you know, burn your mask. Don't get vaccines. He's arguing with Dr. Fauci, making a fool of himself. But we're here dying. And when I speak that truth and make it clear that I'm not going to play those games with your lives, um, we're seeing the support grow. And I'm proud to show
0: that. So, are there any problematic votes that Rand Paul had where, you know, yeah, the the most common is usually oh my god I care so much about the high prices of drugs mm, that's what every politician says and then they go into the Senate and they go oh yeah keep them high keep them high I got money coming in from the drug companies etc so I'm just giving that as an example. Is there are there a couple of those votes for Rand Paul where if the people of Kentucky knew that they'd be like oh wait a minute he's not on our side at all
2: oh man there's a laundry list of them you know. Uh, Kentucky is a ground zero for the decline in the fossil fuel industry. You know, And a lot of our lands have been destroyed. In um, a lot of places, the infrastructure is damaged. Um, not only that internet is crap. And when I tell folks he's been voting against um, efforts to reclaim our minds. He's been voting against uh, relief in the middle of the pandemic. He's been voting against investments in our infrastructure. He's opposed disaster relief throughout his career. And then when that tornado ripped across Kentucky, he wanted to put on a different face. And act like he's been there for us, but people saw through it. And time and time again, he said that expanding health care is like slavery for doctors. I mean, the guy is a joke. And we need to make sure that the Kentucky family, my Kentucky family, knows that he's not representing their needs. And we're doing that. And because of that, we're going to vote him out of there.
0: Hmm. So again, he's got this huffing and puffing about populism and et cetera. I literally don't know one populist thing he's ever done, right? But he just loves to, like you said, he—that's a great description. I never heard it before. A crisis actor, right? And so, so do you know some of his top donors in terms of historically who has given money to Rand Paul because that's. The people most likely controlling him.
2: Yeah, well, you know, one thing that's interesting to note in this campaign, which is a continuance of of the way he's fundraised, which is, like I said, pharmaceutical industry, um, you know, fossil fuel money. Um, there is a super PAC, um, dark money super PAC that was created uh, called Socialist Booker because uh, they were being very creative, and <laughs> um, this is from um, multimillionaires from outside of Kentucky. Um, you know, one is. Um, owner of uh, vodka, Svetka vodka, I've been told. And, you know, he's really just looking for anyone that will put some money in his pocket. And the fact of the matter is, we're tired of being sold out, man. Kentuckians are tired of being screwed. We're tired of being robbed. And we're not having it anymore. And so I've lifted up this vision that I'm calling a Kentucky New Deal. Um, and I'm saying it's, this is inspired by regular people fighting for real change, life, freedom, and prosperity for every single one of us, and it's fueled by small-dollar fundraising because I'm going to be accountable to the people, not big money interest. and And Kentuckians are proud to to show that that's the fight that's worth fighting for, and and I'm excited to win this race.
0: CharlesBooker.org, everybody, and if you're if he's running on small-dollar donations, then uh, that's what. There's no cavalry coming in from giant packs or uh, corporations or any of that. You guys are the cavalry. CharlesBooker.org. Uh, and man, the surge that Charles had last time around was amazing. That's why he scared off the establishment on the Democratic side. And that's why he's probably got a little panic in Rand Paul's heart, uh, which, you know, he could use some health care for. So when Charles wins, he'll give Rand Paul the health care that he needs. Okay, so. And, and by the right. way, just to buttress what um, Charles was saying, you know when Kentucky was all Democrat during the New Deal. So <laughs> Kentucky New Deal sounds pretty good. Charles Booker, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. Take care.